Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult... And welcome, 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 welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palous. I am one of your co-hosts, Melissa Palou, and it's really good to be here with you all today. Um, Devin will not be on the air with me today. Um, I actually will be joined by my wonderful co-host on our uh, True Life Fridays pro-life broadcast, Letitia Wong, um, who um, has been uh, very instrumental in getting this show together. And so she is here with us, uh, let's see here, Letitia, let's see, do I have you here? We're having quite a few technical difficulties uh, today. Let's see. Letitia, you there? 
Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can now. Sorry about that. All yeah. right, I had to I had to click the button. <laughs> I know we're we're having a lot of issues today, but by God's grace, we are here with you, and Amen. this is going to be a um, a very uh, interesting show, um, an informative show, um, and maybe even controversial. Um, but we felt the need to bring this topic to you, and today we discuss the topic of white privilege. Um, and even what that means, or if it's if it's something that actually exists, if it does, what's the answer to it? Um, how should we look at um, a race and racial uh, reconciliation from a biblical standpoint? Because um, this is something that is, is creeping into evangelical circles, and uh, prominent leaders are actually becoming proponents of white privilege um, uh, theory, and so. This is a discussion that we felt would be a good one to have on Theology Matters. Is um, Here we definitely deal with biblical worldview issues um, from a, a Christian perspe- perspective, and we want to look at this issue and how we should address this issue and how we should talk about this issue and, and how we should even critique this issue um, from a biblical perspective. Um, for those who don't know what white privilege theory uh, is or have have never heard of it, or some of you may have heard of it, but just may not be familiar exactly with what it is. Um, the the probably the the broadest definition that I was able to locate um, is is this: um, white privilege is the other side of racism. Okay, so um, it's let me let's, white privilege exists when one group has something of value that is denied to others simply because of the groups they belong to, rather um, rather than because of anything that they've done or failed to do. Access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcome, but it is definitely an asset that makes it more likely that whatever talent, ability, and aspirations a person with privilege has will result in something positive for them. Um, that was the definition given by Peggy McIntosh. She's a, um, I believe, a women's studies um, sociologist. Patricia, would you say that that's pretty accurate of what you've um, read in terms of what what is considered to be this white privilege theory or movement? Sure. As far as she is defined, how everybody's operating off of her definition, uh, she has defined it for us. And so, I mean, that's what we're going to go off of. I think there's, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how, you know, we by default that this <clears throat> white woman has become the authority on what white privilege is just by virtue of her having probably been the longest to talk about it, I guess since 19, oh, all the way back to 1980 something. Um, but this is kind of the, the game in play as it is right now. So we're going to go along with that for the time being with the understanding that I think, you know, in the spirit of how postmodern these academics seem to be, we can change the status quo. Right. Right. Where the status quo becomes a position of privilege or societal benefit, um, per se. Right. But particularly, I meant that we can, after we analyze how this is being put out to people, we can probably change the definition of white privilege because I think there's a lot of faulty thinking that goes along with uh, how Peggy, what was her name, uh, Macintosh, has yeah. 
present it to the public. There's a lot of flaws in that. And when we correct for a lot of things that she gets wrong, I think we have the freedom and the postmodern authority to change what that really means. Because I think there's a lot of unfairness built into an ideology that is meant to describe unfairness. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, yeah. that crept into the church as well as you have mentioned and and that is the topic for today's show is exactly how this has affected christianity especially in america Mm -hmm. all right and um so what we're going to talk about in in kind of a full scope to give everyone a rundown of where we're going with this is we're going to talk about a couple of things that have cropped up that we've noticed going on through uh, in the last few years. One of them is um, a conference or, a, or an evening, uh, which three prominent evangelicals, and you're going to recognize their names, have given their thoughts and their feelings and their prescriptions for the evangelical church on how to deal with racial reconciliation. And not just go, rec, racial reconciliation, but going beyond that if there is a beyond and those three people um are anthony bradley the distinguished theologian uh from king's college i believe uh john piper who is a really prominent evangelical pastor that everybody is probably much considers a household name and also mm-hmm. Tim Keller, who I would say the same thing about um, being the pastor of one of the most notable Christian churches in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are we will be naming names because I think it's important because what what they have said they have said in public, and nothing that we're going to play or talk about today isn't readily accessible to anybody. Uh, so right. there's nothing pulled out of some some private conversation there's I don't have access to any of that and so none of none of which is going to be uh has has any, has ever been said in secret and it mm-hmm. all can be it can all be monitored and looked at quite openly all right yeah and and this is um this is a dialogue that we hope to continue um while we will specifically be critiquing this mindset um, we we recognize that there are people who are who are smart and brilliant and godly um, who um, may not necessarily agree with our position, and so um, that that's something that we wanted to to you know to bring out as well because we know that there's different views of this, but ultimately we want to look at this um, you know God's way, and so that's that's what the debate is here is is how do we look at these issues and how do we dissect these issues. Um, right. You know, it, just as a programming note, this is the. Oh, sorry, didn't need to talk over you. Okay. <laughs> this is the second in a series that we are dedicating on the True Radio Network about the white privilege issue. Uh, tomorrow, we will also continue this discussion with a few more people on uh, the pro-life aspects and the ramifications for pro-life view about white privilege and the idea of racial disunity and disharmony is having uh, in, in, that as- in that aspect. So um, this is going to be just step two, talking about racial issues within the church. Step three is tomorrow. Um, 
I invite everybody to join us again tomorrow to listen to that program as well. But mm-hmm. uh, let's uh, let's go into one of our first clips that I want to play, um, and then I'll bring our distinguished guest on because I'm excited that he's here. Yes, the first clip that I'm I want to play is of Tim Keller, and we don't, we don't have that many, but there's the, I'm saving the le- most lengthy one for last um, because there's so much we can talk about. This is this is how. This issue, I think what I picked out from what he said is representative of, I think, an attitude that I think is driving uh, the white privilege theory um, as far as preaching goes. And this Mm -hmm. is, to set it up, this is Tim Keller at uh, at his church talking to a group of young people in about the race issue. And this is what he says about, and and I love the fact that he tries to bring a lot of gospel, a lot of Bible into this. I am not opposed to it. And right off the bat, let me say that there's a lot of things with Tim Keller that I agree with. There are just some things that I don't agree with. So this is not before anybody gets on my case. This is not about everything that Tim Keller says is wrong. This is not what that is about. So uh, let me play this clip. Joshua 7 says that there is corporate responsibility inside a family. Okay, let's take it up a little higher. In Daniel chapter 9, now we're talking about corporate guilt and responsibility inside a whole race or a culture. Because Daniel, in Daniel 9, confesses sins, repents for sins, says it's his responsibility to repent for sins that his ancestors did that he didn't do at all. They didn't do at all. Uh, especially, I mean, I still hear it, though, especially years ago. I'm an older man when I was, lived in the South in the 1970s. Over and over, I heard, I get back to this, I heard white people say, yeah, it's a shame what slavery did, but I never owned any slaves, so why in the world does anybody think that I, as a white person, now have any responsibility to that community over there at all? I didn't own slaves. But here is Daniel feeling a responsibility for and repenting for things his ancestors did. Why? Because he knows that the culture that he's part of produced the sins of the past, and he's still part of that culture. He senses the responsibility. The Bible senses the responsibility. Okay. Um, I wanted to jump right into having uh, to playing that clip. And yeah. just kind of, I know the audience is feeling like I've just, you know, just thrown a bucket of paint and smell. <laughs> splattered it all over the wall. And let's just go take pick it apart. Uh, the reason I wanted to play this clip first is because if I brought up this issue, oh, people are, are piggybacking off this idea, this historical, the historical aspect that you know America is a, a land that has committed slavery against its people. We have imported slavery. You know, it's in our past, blah, blah, blah. And we now have to deal with the consequences and the aftermath of this. Uh, pretty much sure people will say, well, it's to have to do with Christianity. Well, it has to do with Christianity because Tim Keller, thankfully, has brought it up for us. So I don't have to introduce the fact and justify the case of mixing two subjects together. Um, real quick, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to say right off the bat, this I think he shows a little bit of an attitude that is not necessarily wrong. I think maybe it's a, um, it's a point of view that there is this notion 
uh, that that white American Christians, that their faith in Jesus Christ comes with a generous helping of being in charge of everyone else's faith, while at the same time holding on to rugged individualism and a lot of self-determination in your station in life. I can't help but find these two ideas at odds with each other. Perhaps that is why I can't seem to identify a clear line of reasoning, let alone biblical case or biblical cause, for blaming a whole segment of the Christian church on earth for what I perceive uh, to be racial difficulties or disharmony. And I'll, I'll continue my assessment with that, but I want to bring on our guest who has been waiting patiently on, 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 uh, in our screening room and on, on hold. Uh, C.L. Bryant is one of the most respected persons I know who is out in the media today presenting both a faithful unity of how to interact with people as a human being, as a Christian, incorporating the gospel in the life of, of, of an American Christian. I think he has brought to us a, a real good perspective that is both embodied in, in his latest project, which is the film, the documentary film, The Runaway, Runaway Slave, which I have seen and I love that. And I'm very appreciative that he has made that documentary film showing that the divisions, the racial divisions in America, um, w- that we do have a solution to them. And the solution is not to keep making the wound larger, uh, but to actually promote healing. And he's also a pastor, which as, as a person who is of the faith, I'm very respectful of that because he has dealt with uh, the hurts and the real down-to-earth, situations of individuals as a pastor and so he has a great background himself pastor bryant used to be uh the 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 uh, chapter president of the naacp so he even has uh activism on the civil rights era in the civil rights movement um back in he'll say back in the day and so i want to welcome him onto the program to give us his perspective on this, because I think it is so important that we understand how to go forward from this. It is a very difficult issue, and nobody seems to have a clear sense of direction. So welcome to the program, Pastor Bryant. Well, um, thank you so much, Letitia, for having me on. Thank you. And uh, glad to be with both of you. God bless you. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a very interesting topic that you have. Um, uh, I did hear the clip that you uh, played of the pastor and his um, uh, exposition of that. But the one thing that I think he does miss in uh, his uh, exegeting on that, or at least expounding upon that, mm-hmm. is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, uh, the Old Testament, did not have the privilege of an American Constitution. And what um, the old white men, let's say, who did own slaves, some of them, who wrote the Constitution, what they guaranteed 
when they pen these words, or at least in uh, the founding document, the Declaration of Independence, when they pen these words in the Declaration of Independence, uh, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them is the pursuit of life, liberty, and our pursuit of happiness. They guaranteed, when they pen those words, that one day, even though I, my ancestors may have been slaves in this country, or they may have been indentured servants in this country, they would have the right to compete as individuals, even though that did not exist when they wrote those words. And what the pastor has done, uh, and, and I, I'm sure he hasn't done it knowingly, but what he has done is actually assisted the further division of race in the church by mm -hmm. claiming that somehow God wants generations far removed from atrocities to make good on those. Uh, he, he didn't, they didn't know of America at that point in time. Mm -hmm. We do. I Mm. Yeah, and and so when we consider uh, what the state of humanity is all about, and the story of mankind is a tragic story. It's a story of many cases inhumanity to man. Even those who have good intentions, a good God consciousness, knowing of Scripture, the story of mankind is written in blood, mm. uh, us spilling each other's blood. And so when you talk about uh, white privilege in America today, I have to bring up this one question and ask both, both of you, and ask your mm. listening audience, ask any black person who might be listening, is there anything in America today, 2014, that you can think of that if you wanted to do it, that the color of your skin would stop you from doing it? Is there one thing in America, mm -hmm. if you wanted to do it, that the color of your skin would stop you from doing it? I have asked that question not only on film. I've asked that question in seminars across this country. And there is not one person who can name one thing that the color of their skin would stop them from doing if they wanted to do it. That in itself nips firmly in the bud the idea that somehow there is a white privilege. There's an opportunity, though. Right. Um, let's, let's ask about what Tim Keller has done first is lay out a case that there is such a thing as corporate responsibility, and he means that in the sense that the sins of our fathers, and I'm meaning in very generalized sense, sins in America, the sins of our fathers have to be uh, somehow repented of by the sons, and I do mean in time. Literally, this generation, what he wants to see is this generation uh, repenting and, and asking for, you know, God's forgiveness, and, and that's not wrong in and of itself. But to have some kind of spiritual reparations for the sins of the past, that's that corporate responsibility. And he tried to use scripture as a way to frame that. Now, I do disagree with his use of scripture in that 
sense, but what do you think about his case? Corporate responsibility for sin is actually something that cannot possibly exist, since responsibility for, your, for sin is a personal thing. A, per, a person, I, people cannot uh, be saved as a group. You have to be saved as an individual. And so the responsibility for your personal sin is definitely there. But for a group of people, let's just say white people, for a group of white people to get together in a church and say, or in a country and say that we are going to corporately uh, ask God's forgiveness because some of our ancestors were slave owners in America is is actually something that cannot be, cannot be done. It cannot be done rationally. It cannot be done literally. It, it cannot be done figuratively. It can be done figuratively. It can only be done figuratively. But it cannot be done because when we talk about the spiritual relationship that each of us individually must have with God ourselves, we cannot do that in a corporate way. From one blood, God says in, I think it's the book of Acts, uh, the, around the 17th chapter of Acts, around the 26th verse, God said that he, from one blood, he created all of us to dwell upon the face of the earth. And it was he who determined the bounds of our habitations before we were ever there. And so for whatever reason, God uh, allowed in his providence my ancestors, your ancestors, to make it to these shores, I have to believe that God knew that eventually you, let's just say your ancestors formerly owned slaves, and mine were the former slaves, they, he knew that his perfect will would be brought about today because you and I are discussing a topic that is long past and in this conversation, we are making reparations for what did happen to the, in, in the past. And we are the ones who are, in fact, uh, bringing about that type of healing. But it is not something that can be brought about in a corporate fashion. It has to be brought about individually. Because if, if, if I'm not sorry for it, I don't care how many people get together and say we're sorry for it. If I'm not sorry for it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's right. kind of the idea of um, like baptism for the dead in a sense, you know. You're, you're baptizing someone once they're gone for, for their sin. You're standing in their place, um, though they were not repentant in their lifetime. And it, it to me it makes the, the baptism null and void if the person was not a willing participant in that, um, in that uh, you know, submission to the Lord. Right. Well, you get into a, a doctrinal issue uh, there, and, and I guess even uh, with his argument, uh, you can get into a, a doctrinal issue there. There are some uh, Christian churches who are people who are born again, people who I do believe, or, or we'll see them uh, when, when Christ comes and in his kingdom, we will see them there. But they believe in that particular doctrine. And that is a doctrine of their particular denomination. It may be a doctrine of their church, but I have never seen it 
uh, being confirmed in Scripture where that would be a valid doctrine. So it is one that I personally do not embrace, although I don't judge those that, that do, uh, because perhaps there are some who uh, do not believe in uh, full immersion. As far as baptism is concerned, I do. There are some who believe that sprinkling will, will do the trick. And then there are some who feel as though they can pray for the dead uh, in a purgatory uh, state. And uh, I'll let God sort that out. But as far as uh, how we come to God and how God deals with us, I cannot be saved for my son or my daughters. I can only be saved for myself, and they then have to choose what they're going to do with their own personal lives. My grandfather, there's a story in our family, uh, had, a, had a mule several, several years ago, uh, generations ago. I, in fact, I wasn't even born. It was a great-grandfather. And s- some neighbors were hunting on our property, property I still live on today, and they were shooting at a deer. They missed the deer but shot and killed the mule. Now, we know that family. That family still lives in this area the same as ours. We all attended the same church, or the family attended the same church back in the day. And the hardship that it created on my grandfather, great-grandfather at the time, was that he couldn't plant the big, massive garden uh, that he would normally plant, and we weren't going to be able to make money off the extra crops in selling them in the fall. And so it was tough on our family, and we held, they held a grudge against that family to this very day. When we go to uh, a, a church reunion or a family reunion, we have it at that church, and there's still a coolness between the the. the ancestors or the, the the children of those people and, and to this very day oh, i never I knew that thomas is laughing i, I never knew no, the mule i, I knew nothing I about talking. it but that's how that's how human beings are we tend to think that somehow uh somebody needs to make right the issues of the past we can't do it it just can't be done. The only thing that we can do now is move forward and hope that uh, those, that bridge of pain that we crossed over and the pain that our ancestors felt will be a bridge for us to learn from each other and then live mm-hmm. together for a better society. Right. I want to be fair to this perspective and, and, talk, and, and, and express the fact that it, isn't really, it is only partially about the past. I think they look at it as the past brings into the consequences that we see in the present and that we see that blacks as a whole are a disadvantaged uh, minority in America as well as maybe as Hispanics and maybe although by and large Asians don't count maybe Asians mm-hmm. and other ethnic groups um, and that whites continue to have this type of prominence and places of power and influence that minorities do not have and they see that disparity as a spiritual problem that needs to be addressed by the church I hope I got that correct 
Um, well, that's that's very interesting uh, perspective if that's what he's intending, because the truth is the the most prosperous ethnic group in America are in fact Indians. I'm talking about East Indians. And so the problem is not racism. I tell you what the problem is and what many, and especially the lady that you cited earlier who began writing on this in right. the 80s, they're victims of what's called white guilt. And white mm-hmm. guilt has been a tool of progressive liberals uh, throughout the last 60 years. Uh, I know, I don't know if any of you have ever been to uh, West Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been to any very poor regional areas in the South. I don't know if you've ever seen any real poor people, white people, in the North. I don't know if the statistic of there are more white people on welfare than black people uh, in in America, uh, you know, even comes into play here. When we think about the church engaging in this type of conversation, especially when we have martyrs, who are giving their lives for the faith in China, who are giving their lives for the faith in India. When we think about the Nigerian girls who were Christians and kidnapped in Nigeria, when we think about those types of atrocities that are going on, uh, people being ticketed, preachers being ticketed in Canada for preaching the gospel on issues that are uh, deemed to be hate speech, and then we spend time like this on subjects like um, uh, white privilege in America, when the when black people only represent 13 percent of the population, Latinos represent let's say another 14 percent of the population. When we talk about 26 percent of the population, and not all of them are underprivileged, not all of them are suffering. You see that in the inner city. You see that in large cities. But by and large, blacks have made incredible strides. In fact, I would offer to you this argument, that black people as a group, and I think it would behoove them to look at themselves as that way, for us to look at ourselves as black, as I too am black, but for us to look at ourselves as perhaps the greatest success story that America has to offer. But when you bring in the card of white guilt, you're playing right into the hands of those who would want to keep a certain mindset going and would want black people to buy into that mindset because when they buy into the mindset that there is a privilege offered to white people, then that takes away automatically my incentive to succeed because this white man has his foot on my neck because he is privileged and I'm not. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And I I would have to oppose any preacher, any minister who would actually promote that type of dialogue. Yeah. I um yeah, speaking of, of white guilt, um I uh was at a conference, at a, a Christian conference a couple of years ago and while at the conference, um this lady who I'd never met before um just happened to walk up to me and she she said to me, I'm so sorry and she's got tears in her eyes. And I'm thinking, I've never even met you. I don't even know who you are. What are you sorry for? She's like, I'm so sorry for how my ancestors treated your people. And I just feel horrible. And I just felt like I needed to apologize to somebody for it. 
And so, I mean, it caught me off guard, obviously, but, you know, I had to, you know, it bothered me that she really felt that um, guilty in her heart. And I told her that wasn't God's will, that, that she had done nothing to me and uh, she was my sister in Christ and um, these sort of things. But then, you know, I read, I read this, um, this comment online um, regarding white guilt, and it's, it's written by a white person um, who says, I just feel so guilty that I'm white. Every day I pray that the sins of societal whiteness can Lord. someday be expunged and obliterated. The crimes of white skin privilege leave me filled with shame and loathing. That is amazing how it has been placed under bondage. This woman now is in bondage over something she can't do anything about, and that's the color of her skin. That is a diabolical trick of the devil. Wow. Hey, I want to jump in here. I want to jump in here. Hey, um, Pastor C.L. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, I'm going um, to hit the nail on the head because, you know, in looking at everything that you guys are talking about from a spiritual standpoint, and I raised a question to the Lord in prayer a long time ago just about why the position, speaking specifically of black people, why the condition of the inner city um, was the way it was. And as a people group, what black people need to do, and this is what the Lord shared with me, until the black community as a collective whole whole, repent for still holding on to the sins of racism and unforgiveness. See, that's the problem. For whatever reason, whether it came from the progressive um, pounding of always telling us how we're victims, black people some, somehow think that they're above having to forgive, that they're immune from the issues that happen when you walk in unforgiveness. Well, in praying, the Lord shared with me that was the reason why our community is the way it is, because until we repent, we're not above the spiritual laws of God, even though we think we are in how we handle things. And this white guilt stuff, the white, con- the white conference stuff, it's a spiritual tactic of the enemy to bring others who had no right to be thinking like that to the same place that our community is. Thomas, that is a a very uh, astute observation. Let me share this with you about the black community. And we're 13% of the population. 43% of abortions in this country are performed on black babies. Now, uh, there has to be, I don't care what your politics is on that particular issue, something is absolutely wrong with those figures. How can only 13% of the population account for 43% of the abortions in this country. In the year 2008, and we document this in the film, Runaway Slave, in the year 2008, there were more black babies in the state of New York aborted than born. Is that because of white privilege? I don't think so. I think that's because 
black people have been led to that type of mentality by people we thought we could trust. And I'm going to name them. People like Al Sharpton, people Mm, like Jesse Jackson, who were once against the atrocity of abortion. People like the NAACP, who I left over this very issue. They have led a group of people to their own slaughter, and they have been used by progressive liberals. If there is a white privilege, there has been a privilege of white liberals using black pulpit that's to right. murder black babies. If there is that's one, right. then that's what it is. And so I can't buy into the idea that and, – and Catherine Davis says so well in uh, the movie – uh, runaway slave, and I encourage everybody to get it. And in fact, uh, give my Twitter at Rev C L Bryant at Rev C L Bryant, and my official website is Rev C L Bryant dot com. But Catherine Davis said that her grandmother or her mother said that no black woman could possibly kill her child in that fashion not that since we came through slavery there, there's just no way but Catherine also says that her mother would be weeping and so would mine my grandmothers our grandmothers would be weeping if they saw where we have come to today they'd certainly think that we've lost our minds and they certainly think that we've lost our way there was a time when if a girl got in, in trouble uh, as we used to call it back in the day, uh, she may go away uh, somewhere. All of a sudden, people be asking, where's Susie? And all of a sudden, uh, Aunt Hattie or somebody come up with a baby. You know, she just had a new baby. Well, that's Susie's baby, but Susie would come home, and she'd continue her life. But what I'm getting at is we didn't kill the babies. Right. It, 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 was, it was a point of time when there was a shame attached to that. And I have to say this, that th- that's one thing that has been lost in our country, the whole nation's consciousness. There mm-hmm. is no shame in anything anymore. And that is one of our greatest problems, is that we are not ashamed of anything. I'm going right. Go ahead. I'm going to play the next clip from Tim Keller, and uh, it's a little bit longer, but hang in there. It's a it's a really good one. What I mean by systemic evil, here's a definition. It is a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most of the individuals in the system are not probably intentionally trying to do it. The individuals aren't intentionally trying to do it, but they're part of a system that's doing it. And therefore, there's guilt, and therefore, there's systemic evil. So, for example, I'm give you, uh, let me give you a mini-system. I knew a man who was the, uh, the head of a uh, uh, car dealerships, a set of car dealerships in the South. And the car dealerships, the, the way in which things were done was you could come in and negotiate, and the salesman had a pretty big window of what they could give you the car for. So they would negotiate, and you would negotiate, and it was a way of, it was a lot of horse trading going on, except it was car trading, I guess, and uh, uh, the, the salesmen uh, could, couldn't go lower than this, but they could get this high. And so it was, a, it was partly, it was a tradition. Somebody did some research and found out that, A, men always were better negotiators with the salesmen than women. And white men, were, white men and white black men were better negotiators than African-American women. 
And so when somebody actually looked at what was going on, African-American women were regularly paying far more for their cars and were actually subsidizing the, uh, 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 you know, the price of uh, what white men were paying for cars in that particular town. And so they realized that even though nobody thought they were doing something, if the result was unjust, then it was unjust. Then even though there was nobody in there who originally had said, let's do it this way because that way we will really hurt African-American women. But they were hurting African-American women. There's two things you can do. On the one hand, you could say, because we're not deliberately trying to hurt African-American women and we make better profits this way, we have no responsibility. But the owner, a Christian man, said we do. And he changed the model. He changed the whole approach. His own profits have gone down, but he says it's the only way to be just. Have you got the eyes to see systemic evil? Or are you a typical white Westerner? I know a lot of you aren't white, and a lot of you aren't Westerners, but I'm particularly looking to you. Uh, do you have the eyes to see that kind of thing? Do you, and if you do see them, do you take responsibility? Now, last... What, uh, what he has mistaken here is racism for lack of education and lack of information. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is uh, part of that statement is true. Men in that situation uh, can be better negotiators because they're more educated about cars. Uh, that, that's not a, a sexist statement. That's a statement of fact. Uh, however, when a woman becomes just as educated about cars where she is not taken advantage of by a car salesman, then she becomes just as tough a negotiator as the white man or the black man or whoever is as well. Uh, she, she becomes just as tough because she still has the opportunity, just as the white man will threaten to do or the black man will threaten to do, she still has the uh, individual right to get up from there and walk out of there with her money and mm -hmm. go and get a better deal somewhere else. That's not racism. That's just uh, uh, something that has to do with being educated as to how to negotiate. Now, if the scenario was that they were purposely going to stick it to the black people or the woman when, when she came in there, then uh, just because they were black, not, not because they were, they, they, you know, but right. then, then you would have a racial issue. But what he described was someone who was not informed enough to make the deal better for themselves, and so the deal was not better. That is capitalism. That is the free market, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. So what they are, what they are mistaking, and, and, and what really bothers me is that you use, you throw around the word racism on issues that have nothing to do with race. It has to do with education. Right. I, I want to give him, you know, the full credit of, of what he's saying. And I think it's, it's the, the, the appearance of injustice and how we have kind of defined disparity, just disparity alone as injustice. Now, I'm not going to disagree with, with what he calls to be unjust, okay, for this example, and I don't want to get locked into the example, but he says, you know, what we're supposed to, to gather from his example and his question at the end is, do you see injustice in areas of your life? 
typical white Westerner? And are mm-hmm. you prepared to correct for it if you should identify to the best of your judgment that there is an injustice that's taking place? Um, his example, and I will agree with you, is not an example of racism, uh, although I think you would say it is an example of injustice. I would additionally disagree with how far he, would, he should see it as an injustice, but be that as it may, um, uh, is he training, trying to train white? I lost you. Leticia? I, I can't hear you. <clears throat> Leticia? She may have, have may have well, let, let me yeah. let me deal with that while you're yeah, trying well, to get her back. Yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh Frederick Douglass, uh, a former slave, uh, a runaway slave, as a matter of fact. In fact, he is uh, one of the reasons why I uh, named the movie Runaway Slave. Uh, Frederick Douglass is one of the icons that I have in history. He found out that there was one thing that he was lacking. He was not lacking brawn. He was not lacking brains. He was lacking information. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't unjust, uh, except for him being on the plantation, in a system where they denied him the access to information. In the scenario that he gives of the car dealership, where the person is not being able to do the deal uh, as equitably as someone else who has better information, is something that can be remedied simply through education. And when you go out to buy a car, especially now that all of the information is at your fingertips through your iPhone on what Mm -hmm. you should pay for a car, and what you should know when you go in to buy a car. If you, if you go into any car dealership today and you get ripped off, it's your fault. It right. really is your fault. And so, so who, who, how, many, how many people do we blame for right. us not, not knowing what to do? You go in well-armed because you have it. Frederick Douglass didn't have that information. But he, he got it once he was free. And as a free individual, I, I say to anyone, get yourself some information. Get yourself an education and then go get what you want at the same price that everybody else is paying for it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, if you're going to go shopping for a car and you don't do the research, then you're, you're a target <laughs> to be uh, exactly. taken, taken advantage of. And um, I think that any person who is trying to make a living in a who may not be as ethical um will take advantage of that so um that right our group is uh kind of misguided to to put that on uh, to associate that with racism Patricia, are you back yes i i don't know what part of the question got cut out but i'll repeat it really quick um i think though that tim keller might say this is a matter of injustice rather than of racism that just disparity alone um he wants people to to have white western people to have the eyes to see injustice and perhaps address it in some way um could it be that we might be digging up problems that don't really um aren't really injustice problems 
I see uh, a table being set with that type of dialogue for absolute reverse racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see it in the entertainment industry, and I'm seeing what this type of dialogue that he's making even there uh, at, at a car dealership. Uh, what's going to happen is, and, and what can happen, is that now you uh, make it easy for the black person to buy at discount, and you make it harder for the white person to, to, to buy at discount. Right. Uh, that, either way, it's unjust. Yes, there is un injustice there, but it's in, it should be insulting for someone to think that they have to make it easier for me because of the color of my skin to compete with someone who is white just because I'm a poor old black guy. That, to me, is an insult. Mm -hmm. It insults my mentality. It insults my personal integrity. And it insults my intelligence. And, and, and even though I understand that he is trying to do in his own way a good thing, I think that he is terribly misguided. Mm -hmm. wow. and, and doesn't it also, um, uh, in, a, in a roundabout way, really undermine any successes that my white counterpart may have worked hard and achieved, achieved in this life? It almost as if, exactly. as if they were set up to, to succeed, and so automatically they were going to succeed while it gives me the benefit of, of having that as a reason for my not succeeding. Exactly. That's exactly the point. You see, there was a time when we did not envy wealth. We wanted to emulate wealth. We wanted to be rich. Americans now somehow think that because you have money, you're evil. That's not the American way. Listen, let me tell you something. The, the, the whole idea about being able to tithe off of what I have earned, being able to help the poor off of what I have earned, comes directly from my ability to compete and earn. And so when you attack the idea of being prosperous, and, and, and Lord knows that God even puts it in his word, that his desire for us is to prosper, and, and, and as our soul doth prosper in him. And so how do we do that? We do that by our God-given abilities to expand upon and make – it is he who gives us power to get wealth. And so it's our God-given abilities that we must exercise as anyone else does, white, black, what have you. Frederick Douglass would be nearly a billionaire in this economy if he was still alive because he went from slave to uh, capitalist to free marketer. He was a person who had personal, quiet debates with Lincoln himself, who, by the way, was one of the greatest minds our country has ever produced. This, this man is, it embodies the idea that in America, if you have a good idea, you can become anything you want to become in this country. Ask Jay-Z. Ask Beyonce. Mm. They'll tell you. Ask Oprah. She'll tell you. Right. Ask mm -hmm. Cosby. Ask Clarence Thomas. They'll tell you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I want to move on to our next clip. And this one is a lot longer because I actually condensed uh, theologian Anthony Bradley, uh, his words, from his talk. So it's about five minutes long. Please hang in there. He has a lot of of provocative things to say. So uh, let's give him... A, a the the full hearing of what he has said and um, then and then evaluate that reflections on the doctrine of, of salvation and the doctrine of Jesus Christ but we cannot be satisfied with hanging those things just on those two doctrines because if we do we then are are we then struggle to understand how, the difference that it makes to systems we often will limit it to just people. So this redemptive historical approach is is necessary because Western Christianity tends to whitewash Jesus of his ethnic identity as if his Jewishness is not relevant to his humanity and turns him into a raceless white male with brown hair and brown eyes. You see, if you read the sermons preached to slaves and and the prayers of the Puritans who were chaplains on slave ships, slaves were told that God loves them and, and cares for them, that Jesus died for their sins and that they stand before God as sinners saved by grace alone. The difference is that slaves were told that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as a slave. That this a wonderful plan for your life is to be subordinate to whites because whites have different promises and callings from God than blacks. Uh, moreover, Dr. William Edgar, professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, in his book, Truth in All Its Glory, says this, that the Reformed succinct synopsis of the Christian faith as creation, fall, redemption explains why Christians care about the environment and business, ethics and arts and media and racism and human trafficking in all forms of social injustice and oppression. So, Reformed black theologians discuss race beginning with the doctrine of creation because that addresses the wedge that white Christians have attempted to place between white and, and black existence. Christ, who is sovereign over all and, and is king over all, cares just as much about the injustice in, in the church, the injustice in neighborhoods, as well as the injustice in the boardroom and in business and in sports and in Florida. So Christianity says no to racism in the church and in any social structure that Jesus Christ is sovereign over. Deeper, more penetrating questions. But we cannot have this discussion about race, and I'm glad you brought up the issue about systemic sin, without talking about white privilege. We cannot have this, 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 this discussion about race until we talk about microaggressions. I'll give you an example of both of those things that happen to me on a regular basis. When I often tell people that I graduated from Clemson University, 
which, by the way, won the ACC championship in football last season and also had a top ten recruiting class for the second year in a row. We'll see you in the fall. When I tell people I went to Clemson, the first question they ask me is this, did you play football? I don't know why they think that, but that's the first question I usually get from white evangelicals. Did you play football? Or even here in New York, this happens to me all the time, especially in Midtown. I'm in a department store dressed just like this, and I repeatedly get asked questions about whether or not an item is on sale. Because even in Manhattan, to see a black man in a suit and a bow tie in the middle of the day shopping is weird. The assumption is that this must be, this must be some sort of employee of the store because this is what blacks... It, it surprises me the extent to which Jesus' own teaching about loving one's neighbor is often missing from this discussion. We often want to transact reconciliation, have meetings and sing kumbaya and give people hugs. But often thinking about the, the difficulty and challenge of actually loving someone, loving your neighbor in the same way that God loves us. And so we have to remember, as I think about my parents' generation, what they heard from white Christians on both sides of Jim Crow was that they were saved by grace and that we would be together in the eschaton. But what they did not hear from white Christians is that they were worthy of being loved by them. Okay. And, that is uh, a, um, a, a very shocking sermon he exegetes well right. uh, it, it was a very well written sermon but jesus uh, uh came behind john the baptist preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand my pastor my personal pastor uh james a mcmenus word of god ministry is a white pastor now our congregation is 60 40 black to white in Shreveport, Louisiana. That, I might add, was the last city to concede defeat in the Civil War. Mm. Some ask, how is that possible? We preach to over 3,000 every Sunday in two services. We're about to have to go to three. How is that possible? It is because we don't preach race. We don't preach denominationalism we preach the kingdom of God and when you preach the kingdom of heaven then you have to eliminate that because in God's eyes the only two types of people that exist on this earth are Jews and Gentiles there is no Hi. white privilege because whites are Gentiles as well as blacks and anyone who is a non-Jew. And so when Jesus came here, he hoped that his people that he came to, the Jews, would in fact receive him. They did not. And so he took his message through Paul to the Gentiles. And so when we look at America, 
a place that is made up of mostly Gentiles, you, if when you use the pulpit as a tool to break down the kingdom of God into colors, then you are doing the kingdom a disservice. And so again, I have to say that I oppose any minister, any church who would embrace the doctrine of white privilege because it has nothing to do with the repentance of man and the kingdom of God. When Abraham left the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, and headed toward a place where God was going to show him to become the father of a nation, of many nations, guess what happened on his way to the promised land or on his way to where God wanted to show him? Uh, he picked up people of all types of races. There's no place, on, there was no place on the map that said Jew land. There was no place on the map that said Hebrew land. God was going to make a people out of a people who were not a people, which meant that Jews would represent all people. And so when you, even if you preach Old Testament gospel and talk about Jews, you're talking about the family of man. You're talking about a chosen people that God put together to be a representation of all of us. And so when we look at this and when we look at, at, at how the church is handicapping itself over the issue of race, white privilege, then again I say we do ourselves a huge injustice. As eloquently as he speaks, as eloquently as he presents his case, mm -hmm. it is a case that is terribly misguided. Right. I find a lot of his, uh, it's very personal for him that I see. Uh, when he talks, he began his talk, um, that's not on the clip, talking about how his family now owns the land that they used to be slaves on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he, he repeats and repeatedly says that they now own the land. They own the land. And uh, now, and he talks about how this, mic this idea of microaggression that he experiences as he says, on a regular basis. There, it's very clear to me that it's personal to him. Now, mind you, he is also a person who has been raised with a little bit of privilege. He hasn't gotten to where he is in life today without a lot of things uh, provided for him. And he will readily admit it. But as a black man, he thinks that as a black man, he has had so many disadvantages in the culture. For example, his examples of being uh, asked what if something was on sale at a store. Um, I, I kind of, what do you think about this personal nature? Well, let his, me share this with his, you. Uh, let me share this with you, Letitia. My grandfather, yeah. my grandfather, the son of a former slave, and uh, I live on this, this, the property that uh, my ancestors were slaves on as well. And uh, when my great-grandfather uh, and his brothers were freed from slavery, they purchased from the slave owner 300 acres of property. And the reason they were able to do that is because, the, let's, for the sake of conversation, the white man who owned the property 
the money, Confederate money that he had, was worthless. Mm. He was, he, he was, it was all of a sudden worthless. And the privilege that he had over them before the Emancipation Proclamation no longer existed. And so guess what? My great-grandfather and his brothers took advantage of their freedom now to go to him and say, hey, look, we know that you're in a bind. We know that you need some money, and you can't make it because we're no longer working for you, and the money that you have is no longer any good. So tell you what, we're going to work and pay you for the land that we formerly worked on. And they, they, over a period of time, I think it took them four years to actually purchase 300 acres of land. I still hold on to 64 acres of it this very day. I'm speaking to you from it right now. My grandfather, his son, my great-grandfather's son, uh, when I was very Afrocentric back in the early 70s, I had a huge Afro. Uh, <laughs> black and proud, was, that was all about me. And I, I, had, I, I grew up somewhat privileged myself. My father was a very uh, uh, recognized and affluent man in his community, in our community, the black community. But I came down here to the farm, and Grandpa had uh, some work for me to do. It was to uh, dig some fent post holes with, with the post hole digger. And I pulled up, and uh, I, in fact, I think I might have had James Brown blasting on my, my car that Daddy bought me, a 69 Mustang Fastback, uh, black kid. I'm talking about 1970, 71, kid of privilege in Shreveport, Louisiana, coming down here to Grand Cane, Louisiana, kid of privilege. But my grandfather, when I was getting out of the car, he came to me. With, with his eyes were almost welling up with tears. I could tell he was angry. He was a pulpwood cutter, had his own business, uh, hired several men around the community to work for him, had three trucks of his own uh, back in the day. He came up to me and he said, Sonny, that's what he called me, he said, I didn't go through all that I went through so you could be black. He said, I went through all that I went through so that you could be free, free to go where I didn't get a chance to go, free to say what I didn't get a chance to say as far as speaking my mind, and free to be with whoever I wanted to be around. And today, somewhere around the throne of God, and I always get emotional when I think about this, I hope that that old man is absolutely proud of what the sacrifice that he made, not so I could go around talking about how whites still have a privilege over me, but how he paid the price so that I could be my own man and do whatever I wanted to do with my own God-given talents and abilities. That's what he paid for. And anyone who has had a privilege as a black man, a black woman, or any American of any color in this country, they must thank the shoulders that they stand on. Because whether you're white or black, I guarantee you the success that you're, make, that, you, that you're making or even the failures that you're privileged to have in this country, you're standing on the shoulders of someone else who has paid the price for you to be there. How does this thinking... Um, Bradley and Keller, and I didn't play any clips from John Piper, but um, he was part of that event as well. 
how if this continues in the American church, how will this affect actual race racial reconciliation? How will this affect the evangelical church in the long run? Oh, are you speaking to me, Letitia? Yes. Uh, I think it it will actually further the cause of your Al Sharptons. It furthers the cause of your Jesse Jacksons, your NAACP. It furthers the cause of people who have, and I'll use this word, who have prostituted and pimped the black church because now they have one more arsenal in their weaponry, and that is to say that now you are victims of white um, privilege. And there are so many who are uh, in this economy looking for someone to blame for it. I still say that the same formula for making your way out still exists. There is still, if, if, if you don't have a job, create a job. There's still a lawnmower to push. There's still some weeds to whack. There's still some trees to trim. There's still houses to clean. And there's no work that is not honorable if it's honest. And so, so many people want to have uh, the house on the hill, but you don't want to pay the price to get there. And so sometimes you've got to start at the absolute bottom in order to work your way up to the absolute top. And so uh, that is still the way to do it. Do it the old-fashioned way. Earn it. Amen. Um, and um, um, Pastor Bryant, you know, one of the things that we, we forget is when we look back statistically um, over time and at the condition of the um, black community, um, we, we've seen a progressive deterioration. Um, like, for instance, in, in the 50s, half of blacks had moved into the middle class, and we see that um, we are falling behind in a lot of ways now. Um, and I would say that this is mostly due to um, liberal, uh, progressive, uh, damaging policies. It almost You're absolutely good. right. And it, it um, the liberals now because of because their policies have failed our communities that they were hoping to help us. Now they want to instead of pointing the finger inwards once again, is they want to blame the system um, as opposed to taking responsibility for these failed policies. Absolutely right. You uh, uh, people are, are you young people are a little bit younger than I am. I'm sure both of you are young enough to be my daughters. I have daughters who are in their 30s, and of course, I still look very good for a man my age. But <laughs> just the same, yes, let sir. me say this: uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, you can still uh, have what you want in this country. You see, I remember. I'm old enough to remember Negro Day. I'll, I'll be, I'm 58 years old, and I remember Negro Day in, at the state fair in Louisiana. That was a day when Negroes could go to the state fair. That was one day out of a two-week run that Negroes, as we were called then, we were called that then, and that was, that was a privilege to be called that because there was a lot of other words that they would call you that did not uh, have any hate message to them in Louisiana. That was just, that's just the way it was. So on Negro Day, we'd go to Negro. I remember the segregated water fountains. I remember riding on the back of the bus. I remember all of those things. If there is someone 
who should be angry. If there's someone, I remember my uncle uh, being uh, roughed up real bad, trying to go and vote. And, and, and I, I see him now. He's an elderly man. He's uh, just about to be 80 year, uh, 80, 82 years old. He's not angry, but he's very prosperous. I imagine he has the first dime he ever made. You know, he, but, but he's very prosperous. How did, a, how, how did he do that? He worked for it. And, le- yes, you are absolutely right, uh, my young friend. Mm-hmm. Through the 60s, all the way up to this present time, black folks, as I stated earlier, are the epitome of the greatest success story that this mm-hmm. country has to offer. We should embrace that. But this is the problem that our black young men and young women are facing right now. You can't compete if you don't have education. If you're not well-spoken, and I, I noticed that everybody on this line is well-spoken. They're able to uh, 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 convey their thoughts in such a way that everyone listening, whoever that is around the world, would be able to understand what you're trying to convey and then uh, accommodate you on your request. But what we're seeing, especially in the inner city, unfortunately, is you're seeing young people, first of all, who have no education. I'm on my way to Chicago on the 14th of uh, this month to talk to a group of people on the south side of Chicago about this very issue. Empowerment through education, through jobs, creation, and all that type of thing. But if you can't talk, if you can't speak the language, and if you are not educated enough uh, in order to compete in this society, then it's not the white man's fault. It may be the fault of poor families that the great society of Lyndon Johnson created in that inner city for this very time to keep people in a certain block, in a certain uh, caste, in a certain community that they could depend on as an underclass to be used for such a time as this, to keep churches divided, to keep races divided, and to transform America, the great hope of the world, into a place that becomes just as common as Greece, who uh, have people who uh, are rebelling in the street because they are an entitlement society, as England, who have people rebelling because uh, they're not getting their entitlement. America was a place where you earned what you made yourself without government interference. But there was a design, a 60-year plan, even longer, to make America an, an underclass of people, and as you look at the economy today, to make all Americans dependent on big government, thus taking mm-hmm. away the free market system and taking away the promise that those who escape slavery, those who escape poverty, would have to depend on big government. It's a diabolical plan, and it's working, because even in the church, you have preachers who are saying that, yes, it's because of white privilege. To me, that is a shame. 
Right. And we even have books that have been written about this. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, I'll tell you a short story. The reason I came across this book, it's called The New Even The Next Evangelicalism. And it's written by uh, a person called a theologian called Sung Chan Rai. He's a pastor, he's actually an intervarsity Christian fellowship guy. And I had gone to the evangelical theological uh um, the, the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society's 2010 conference. And I'll make a little confession there. I was actually scheduled to go to the apologetics conference, but since it was held all into the same hotel, I made my way downstairs from my hotel room the day before when the conference was still going on <clears throat> and uh, snuck into a room, and providentially it was about this very topic. It was about the book, The Next Evangelicalism. And who should be sitting among the panelists were the very people that Anthony Bradley has uh, in his speech that it wasn't in the cuts but uh, talked about. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention was there. Uh, Vincent Baycote and uh, several other people were on the panel all talking about this, and they all had assumed that this white privilege predominates the American white church and the and, and I'm talking about this in specifically because I thought I was the only person back there looking very confused and uncomfortable thinking I don't really understand why this issue of race is so divisive. Here's a here's a little paragraph from the book The Next Evangelicalism that kind of summarizes the reason that there was a event there. Uh, it says, Sung uh, Chan Ra says, the Western white captivity of the American evangelical church has reached its height. However, when something reaches its height, there is nowhere else but down. The seeds of its downfall are already in place. The Western white captivity of the church must give way to the next evangelicalism. However, given the power of white captivity, will this release happen anytime soon before it is too late? Will the power of white captivity continue to linger on, holding on for dear life? When reviewing the state of the 21st century American evangelical church, it is easy to get discouraged. A sense of defeat and hopelessness can easily overcome Christians. Western white captivity feels like too large of an obstacle to the next evangelicalism. The message that evangelicalism is held captive to Western white culture is too hard to hear. The changes that are required are just too difficult. In order to throw off the shackles of Western white cultural captivity, proactive steps need to be taken. And he goes on to uh, advocate a form of affirmative action within our pulpit. But I keep hearing these words, the Western white captivity of the church. Right. Can you talk about that? Because I, I am having a really hard time wrapping my mind about right. why he says it so often. Right. Uh, it is a mantra that uh, he is trying to uh, institute, hoping that someone will, in fact, pick up on it and run with it. And I'm sure that several... Uh, a progressive type ministers uh, in and I and I almost hate to use that word progressive because it's regressive uh, for someone to take that type of uh, attitude and and use it in the church but this is what he's trying to accomplish 
he's trying to bring about something very similar to the black uh, theology, uh, the black liberation theology movement, which basically uh, operates from this premise. If Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel cannot soothe or solve the ills of our social mores or society, then what good is it? That's basically what he's saying. And then the enemies of, the, of, of that, that uh, salvation for the ills of society have to be white folks. It, it, and, and, and what he is doing, and I, I'll say it again, is creating a climate of division in the church. And, and that is a devilish thing that is taking place. And believe it, Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. Somehow we're going to bring about justice now for the black man who was oppressed in this country, and if you look at the inner city, he is still being oppressed in this country. So the transformation of the angel of light is to say that there must be something done through the church by white people whose ancestors are responsible for his current inequity. And so what then you leave out of that equation is the fact that no race is responsible for any injustice as far as society is concerned. Evil is the cause of that. Mm. Evil in the hearts of men are the cause of slavery. Sin is the cause of that. And what preachers evidently in those cases have stopped doing is preaching on sin. It's, and they have stopped preaching the gospel of repentance unto salvation. For there is no other name by which the world can be saved except that of the name of Jesus Christ. When we preach a gospel, as Paul says, if any, anyone comes to you with any other gospel other than Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead, let him be accursed. And so this is what we are seeing happening when we see these types of ministers and ministries begin to take hold in the church of God. Know this that it is a diabolical plan of Satan to take mm. us off of what truly redeems men, and that is the blood of Christ who is, who, what that was shed for all of our sins, even the sins of inequity of slavery, even the sins of inequity in, 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 in America or in Greece or wherever that might be. The answer for the world today is still Jesus Christ. And preachers need to hear what we are saying here today. Preach Christ. He does solve social ills. But he also told us this, that he was going to be with us only for a little while. But the poor will be with you always. Mm. Right? That's right. Yeah, and, and, and regarding the Bible and the view, our view of sin, I also see um, an issue of pride here in this, in this discussion. Um, for instance, I, um, this article by Peggy McIntosh that I was reading, um, she lists about 80 different 
um, scenarios, um, and she lists them under daily effects of white privilege. And I was reading through some of these, and I, I was chuckling, actually, but she honestly um, is convinced that these are, are ways that she identifies that she, that as a white person, that she lives in a world with, with white privilege. Um, one of the things she says here is, I can be sure that my children will be given uh, circular materials that testify to the existence of their race. Um, if I want to, I can be pretty sure I find the publisher for any piece of my work. Um, she says here, I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys, and children's magazines featuring people of my race. Um, I can be pretty sure that if I t ask to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing um, a person of my own race. And I'm reading these, and it's just it's, there's this over-obsession with self here. There's this yeah. over-obsession with me, me, me. I want, you know, I want to see more of me. I want, you know, as, as opposed to caring about diversity um, in a sense. And I just, um, I was just pretty appalled as I was reading through some of these that seemed so sinister that yeah. as a black person I can never um, be in a situation where I'm comfortable um, ever. I'm always going to be uncomfortable. I'm always going to feel bad, alone, and rejected. And I reject that completely. And I would assure you, I would dare say, that the, the lady who wrote that uh, is a person who, if you become very successful, she is going to say that she helped you get there. This is what President Obama was saying when he says, if you have a business of your own, if you've made it, and you didn't get there on your own, that's the mindset that they wanted mm -hmm. to help me. Surely, surely there were teachers that helped me along the way. There's no question about that. Surely there were people that I listened to for advice. But guess what? CL mm -hmm. and, and my wife, Jane, we had to get out there and do this. You can, you can have all the help you want, but unless you actually have the, the, the wherewithal, the intestinal fortitude to get out and actually do the work to become successful, to actually pull yourself up to wherever level you're going to go, regardless of whatever help there is, if you don't take advantage of it, and that's an individual choice, then I am telling you that uh, you will become handicapped. And that is the progressive liberal mindset. Let me be your overseer. And, folks, let me say something that's just going to shock uh, all of your listeners, is going to shock you. You might hang up the phone on me, but that's okay because it's true. There is, there has been a distortion of a, uh, a phrase that comes from the Bible, uh, and it comes from the lips of Cain, the first murderer in the Bible. And the words that Cain was speaking to God were sarcastic words that he was speaking to God after he had killed his brother Abel, who did the right thing. He did what was required of him to be prosperous, and God honored his prosperity. He honored his work, and, and, and Cain was jealous of that, and he murdered Abel. And when God came to him and asked him where was his brother, where is your brother? His blood cries out from me to be from the ground. Do you know what Cain said to God? He asked these words, am I my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. And somehow we have taken those sarcastic words 
that this first murderer in Scripture uttered to God and have turned them into some type of mantra as though we're supposed to be our brother's keepers. Well, let me warn you about your brother's keeper. If your brother is keeping you, then it is up to him how much you're kept, how well you're kept, and how long you are kept. Mm-hmm. That is, a, a, again, a twisted portion that Satan has planted, even in the church, in the mm-hmm. minds of well-meaning people, thinking that there is somehow we're supposed to uh, be our brother's keeper. No, mm-hmm. we're not. We're to be our brother's teacher. We can help him if our brother needs help, but we're not to keep our brother. Our brother is to keep himself. Look, I know how much money is in my pocket. I know what my mortgage payment is. I know what my car payment is. I know what my children need. I don't need anybody keeping me. Mm-hmm. But that is the mindset of big government, and that is also the mindset of big brother, and it is infiltrating the church. Absolutely. Um, and just in wrapping up, um, Reverend Bryant, this was a quote. This piggybacks right on what you're what you're referring to. Um, when talked about, when uh, discussing what in, in the context of white privilege, what what can we do now? And this is the mindset. Um, this is a quote by Gary Howard. He says, "Whites need to acknowledge and work through the negative historical implications of whiteness, and create for ourselves a transformed identity as white people." committed to equity and social change, to teach my white students and my own children that there are different ways of being white and that they have a choice as white people to become champions of justice and social healing. So, again, our, our success as a community, as a black community, still relies upon whites um, being guilty and, and, and repenting for their, for their whiteness um, and that's the and and changing the culture in some way because of that, and that is what is going to lead us to be successful as a people. And again, this is a, a mindset of of dependency, and it's it's what it's what this breeds is that we still need um, we still need someone in order for us to make it. We right. Still need their guilt and their shame. Clarence Mason Weaver uh, said this, and I'll leave you with this comment. Mm-hmm. Um, he said this in the movie Runaway Slave. He said, America has changed from the time when he and I were, were young and growing up as young people. America has changed to the point where I don't care if my neighbor is a Klansman. I don't care if he don't like me. I don't care if he, he doesn't like the color of my skin. As mm-hmm. long as he doesn't stand in my way of competing against him. You see, that was what we were trying to overcome. You see, the playing field was not level for competition. Now the playing field, listen, if Barack Obama has proven anything, is that black folks can achieve anything in this country. If he has proven anything, he, is pro- he may not be doing it as well as, as I, I would hope that he would do or could do, but if he has achieved anything, he has achieved the fact that, that black folks can, can a- a- accomplish whatever they want in this country. And again, I say there is nothing in this country that I can point to that the color of my skin will hinder me from doing it if I want to do it. Now, 
if in fact that is the case, then this is where we're leading. This is where you're going to find this conversation or the type of dialogue that these various distinguished pastors have uh, uh, given to us today. You're going to find that it will create a certain tribalism. Mm -hmm. Church people are tribalistic, all of them, white and black, particularly black folks in in the black community, and, and, and you know what I'm talking about. Whatever the pastor says back in the day, and even today, usually goes in the black church because the pastor is the chief of the tribe as far as the church is concerned. And what I am seeing through these types of conversations and dialogues is that they are trying to institute the same brand of tribalism in Mm -hmm. white churches that has existed for ages in black churches because it is a method of controlling the mindset and the vote of the congregants in that church. It is diabolical. It is devilish. And it is something that we should shun. Absolutely. And, you know, um, you had mentioned President Obama briefly, um, Reverend Bryant. If anything, President Obama, in my mind, he is simultaneously, he's a walking a reputation of white privilege. And I say that because no matter what he does, he can get away with it, and he's not accountable because of his skin color, because you're accused of being a racist if you dare criticize any of his policies. So I would say that he actually is a reputation of this so-called white privilege that, that we're told exists, and he's the highest man in the land in our country, um, and yet his skin color, uh, uh, you know, gets him away with quite a bit, in my opinion. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think it was the comedian Red Fox that said, don't be deceived. There are many white black people, too. And, and, and Obama is, 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 is an elitist. And most black people, especially the 98% that voted for this president, and I was not among them. I don't, I don't mind telling everybody. I was not among them. And I'm glad, especially uh, when I look at what's going on uh, in, in, the, in the White House and this administration today. Uh, yes, I was glad that America finally got over that hurdle. I actually shared tears tonight that uh, this, this young African-American man of color uh, became president of the United States because my, both my parents were gone, my grandparents were gone, and they, they wanted to see the day that there would be a person of color uh, in the White House. But I have to say this. I believe with all my heart that they deserve better than what they got. I believe we had many more choices uh, of people of color who could have been president uh, Mm -hmm. than uh, this particular president. I do respect the the office of the presidency, and I do respect him. I am an American. I'm an American citizen. I have no intention of denouncing uh, my my, uh, citizenship in America, so he is my president. And, uh, but I wish that my president would do a better job of being commander-in-chief. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Letitia, I think you had some, some things to, to say and wrap up. Well, I, I wanted to say thank you to Pastor Bryant for being uh, such an incredible voice for our, our program today. I have learned so much. 
And um, if you are if you are needing to go, um, we are, our time is up um, for your segment. And but I, I am so appreciative and thank you so much for being a part of our show today. Well, Letitia um, and all of you, I thank you yes. so much for the privilege. It was an honor to be on with you again. I, I hope that everybody will will follow me on Twitter at Rev C L Bryant or go to my official website Rev C L Bryant dot com or uh, uh, Rev C L Bryant uh, whatever yeah go to dot com or dot net dot net either one and uh, you will be able to pull up our website but listen God bless you God keep you and I trust that uh, you you prosper and do well in this life thank you so much God bless you, uh, God bless you, you too the honor is all ours um, and mine in particular um, yeah I. Yeah, I just needed an extra couple minutes just to process. I mean, that was a lot. I think we went through a lot. I think I wanted, I wanted to run the whole gamut of what this means, in uh, particularly in the American church. Um, I'll go back to what I had started off saying at the beginning of the show. Um, I can't help but find the idea that there is such a thing as as being in charge of somebody else's faith. Um, bringing them up in a way that is kind of almost paternalistic um, reparations, you know, spiritual reparations, being in charge of other people's faith, while at the same time holding on to that rugged individualism of and a lot of self-determination in your station in life. And I think he went through that a lot. I can't help but find these two ideas kind of at odds with each other. Perhaps... That is why I can't seem to identify a clear line of thinking or reasoning, let alone biblical cause, for blaming a whole segment of the Christian church, the white segment, um, on earth for what I perceive to be no more than hurt feelings about not being accommodated enough on a cultural level. For example, these microaggressions that Anthony Bradley has uh, brought out for us in public. And uh, I can get into that microaggression issue in just a bit, but I want to not lose the point here, which is, are we Christians really that shallow? Are we really that small-minded to think that we cannot love and learn from each other as fellow human beings and brothers and sisters in Christ until someone who looks a certain way gets out of the way. I say for some of us, it is obviously true. That's what they think. Someone does need to get out of the way, but it's not who they think. The one who needs to get out of the way is the one who brings petty strife and division and jealousy and blame into the body of Christ. He is the twister of truth and the father of lies. This ideology that comes from the bowels of those who have no God but their own passions has crept its way into that part of the evangelical church that has matured to the level of Justin Bieber, I mean Bieber, in the world of pop Christianity. We should be ashamed that it has hidden itself so well 
in the language of racial reconciliation and the notion of improvement. Now, before someone accuses me of defending the status quo, I am not. Since our attention here is on the American church, let me say as, as an American, we do have a long way to go. Why do I oppose the way some of these prominent Christians that we talked about uh, choose to deal with it? Because it is backwards. As Reverend Bryant has said, it is regressive, divisive, and completely ungodly. We want progress from the mistakes of the past. And so in order to make progress, we need to live for the future, not in the past. The way forward is to look at Scripture and the church the way Jesus would want to, and the apostles showed us to, and not buying the sinister mechanisms of race-baiting opportunists in our secular culture, like Derek Bell and the marketing experts for the White Privilege Conference. We have to look at ourselves as Christians first. Human Christians, not black Christians, white Christians, Asian Christians, etc. Well, funny, black and white get a color, but it's somehow racist to call any other race by a color. Hmm. Good does not regard, I'm sorry, God does not regard the outward man. And to Christ, we all have the same problem. Our hearts and our souls are desperately wicked, able to twist even the gospel of Jesus Christ into a long-term tool of indeterminate microaggression and division. It's sad that I have to confess that my own church has had pastors talk about white privilege talk about racial reconciliation in this way as a matter of division, I, on, on just very cursorily saying, I'm so uncomfortable when they bring it up, but I'm uncomfortable because I know there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with the idea that we're all closet racists, so closeted, Oh, white people anyway. And, and I'm sorry. It's the white people and the non-white people who don't realize that the white people are as racist as this narrative makes them out to be. So closeted that we don't even realize that we're racist at all. I think about that poor young child who was about 14 years old, teenager, uh, that went to the White Privilege Conference and was – I don't know if he was made to stand in front of everybody or he chose to stand in front of everybody. And he was saying, I'm proud to be a racist. And I admit and I confess that I'm a racist. That poor kid, mm. that's child abuse. Mm. That is rank child abuse. And everybody applauded. Wow. It is sad and it is very sick on, on that level. And it's creeping into our evangelical churches and it should bother you. It should bother everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> it um it should. And you know, this is you know, the more we, we talk about this issue today, I mean it's just become very emotional for me in a sense. Um, because I love I love my community, you know. I mm-hmm. love I love the church, you know, I love the body of Christ. And so when we see these um counterproductive, very sinister ideas creeping up 
and dividing us, it just it breaks my heart because I love the church. And as a person who has Christian friends of every, I mean, of every skin hue and of, from every, just about every country around the world, um, it, it really, um, it, it, it hurts my heart um, to know. And mm, yeah. what bothers me, what bothers me the, the most, I think, um, is not this idea of white privilege per se, but just this idea that as black people that we cannot overcome the legacy of slavery. And that is something that I completely reject. I, I, we see it happening before our eyes. Right. We see our doors opening. We see, um, you know, we see things change. We have a black president, for goodness sake. Um, but this is idea of bondage that, that Reverend Bryant talked about, this mental bondage. When we, when we propose these ideas, they have consequences. And the consequences become um, an inner um, reflection of oneself and their worth. Um, and so we need to really be careful. Um, our, our evangelical leaders need to think about these issues um, a little more, a lot more, more clearly. Um, and, right. and to the extent they're, they're not inconsequential ideas, they they do affect us and they will affect us negatively. And so we need to be very wise about how we approach this topic of racial reconciliation and how we, in a way that unites people as opposed to um, alienating us and causing certain segments to feel bad, guilty about who they are when they haven't done anything. That's right. not what God would have us to do. I agree. I agree completely. Um, I think we've swapped out the, the discussion about who we are for what we are. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's that's trivializing people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is uh it is the job of the enemy to do that, to distract us from the goal of 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 pursuing Christ and to, to make him known to this world and this generation. It is his job to distract us from that mission. And he will use whatever, um whatever means possible, um to, to cause that to happen. But you're right, the value of the human being is left out of this, this equation altogether. And that is what God cares about <clears throat> most. That's right. It's about, it's about his people. And so we need to, to think that way as well. And that moves us seamlessly into tomorrow's broadcast on True Life Fridays Radio, where we will be talking with three very, very important people to my heart and to the show uh, first of all, tomorrow we will be talking with George Mason University professor, economist, Dr. Walter E. Williams, about this white privilege and uh, the future of humankind. Walter Williams, that's right. Uh, we will also have author, blogger, radio talk show host from the blacksphere.net, Kevin jo- Jackson. Kevin Jackson. And my good friend from Nurses for Life, Stephanie Rubach, who has come from a personal struggle uh, back to back to life on Earth as we know it. Uh, she had struggled with a brain cancer and is recovering very well. And she's getting back in the saddle and rearing to go. And we will be talking about how white privilege theory has actually negatively impacted more minorities in America than white privilege. 
It's going to be a great show, so you all do not want to miss it. <laughs> That's right. Tomorrow at 5 p.m. Central, uh, we'll mm-hmm. see you tomorrow. And if you catch us on Twitter, uh, it's at TLF Radio. On Facebook, give us a like. It's True Life Fridays Radio. Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight. Have a great night. God bless. Pardon me, if you are still listening, I just, Thomas had just informed me that I gave the wrong time for the show on True Life Fridays tomorrow. It will be 4 p.m. Central, not 5 p.m. Central. It is an hour earlier to accommodate some people's schedules, so we will see you here at 4. True Life Fridays Radio.